Thank you, uh, choir, orchestra, and Brother Terry. That was, uh, that was a fantastic song of worship and praise. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we're going to print it on the screen because we want you to be able to read with us Revelation 5, verses 1 through 7, in a message that I've been so excited about uh, teaching and preaching entitled, The Lion and the Lamb. Chapter 4, it focuses on God the Father on the throne as all the inhabitants of heaven are worshiping Him. And now the scene shifts slightly to God the Son and this ominous book, or maybe better to call it a scroll. And so the scroll or the book takes up a very key part in the book of Revelation. One writer says Revelation chapter 5 is the key chapter that we have to understand what is unveiling, what is happening in this passage of Scripture. Speaking of books, as you know, I, I love to read, and I'm fascinated with, with books of all shapes and sizes. Currently, I am just finished up Nick Ripkin's wonderful book, uh, The Insanity of Obedience, and I highly recommend it. And I'm also reading Abraham Lincoln. I've read his one biography, now I'm reading another biography, and it's, it's excellent. And I love to read. I believe it is to the mind what physical exercise is to the body. Speaking of books, there are some fascinating books on this planet. The Library of Congress has about one million uh, titles. Did you know 40% of all the millions of books, close to 100 million books today, 40% of those are printed right here uh, in the United States uh, of America. In the Library of Congress, the smallest book is 123rd by 125th inch, and it takes a pen to turn the pages, a needle pen to turn the pages. This book is so small. The largest book in the Library of Congress, well, it's about my size. It's about 39 inches tall, and it's James Audubon's Books of America. It's literally three feet tall, 39 inches tall. The most expensive book uh, in the world, I don't know if you knew this or not, but it's in Austin, Texas. At the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas, they have the Gutenberg Bible. And years ago, it was priced at $20 million, arguably the most expensive book uh, in, in the world. I'm fascinated with books. I love reading them. I love studying about them. The oldest book on record is located in Bulgaria's National Museum, and it is two and a half thousand years old. Two thousand five hundred years old. And it is a fascinating book on it's, it's, it's this large 24 karat pictures, and uh, each picture of the books, only six pages. It's 24 karat gold. Speaking of books, what I hold in my hand today is the most cherished, precious, best-selling book in the history of mankind. I, I believe it's that way because this book is so unique because it has God as its author. And so when in Revelation chapter 5, when I read in a moment, there's going to be this ominous, conspicuous book that is going to be displayed in the hand of God and God the Son will come and remove that book from the Father. And when that happens, in Revelation chapter 5, that is the signal point of the key events that are about to unfold in the remainder of the book. So let me read the text. John says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book or a scroll written inside and on the back. This book was written inside and on the back. Think about that. 
and it was sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a megalevone, a loud mega voice, who is worthy to open the scroll or to open this book and to loose its seals? And John, he's recording the scene in heaven. He says, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And John says, as a result of this, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And I'm going to submit to you today, Great Hills, one of the most powerful words in all the Word of God is Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. It's a three-letter conjunction, B-U-T, but... When all seemed lost and all was just going to continue in the disarray on earth, the Bible says, but. But one of the elders said to me, behold or listen, the lion (laughs) of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has Nikon, Nike. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And John said in verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, there he stood, a lamb. John said it was a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came, and he took the scroll, mercy. He took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Today what we're going to look at is this ominous book, this scroll. We're going to look at a search, an exhaustive search in heaven above, on earth below, even below the earth. Some believe that is a reference even to the demonic realm. This exhaustive search in all the universe, who is worthy to open this scroll and enact what is written therein? Next, we're going to study the Savior, and then we'll have to wait next week to pick up on verse 8 as we're going to look at the song. So first of all, I know it's getting toward noon, but let, let me begin with the scroll, number one. What is this book that resides in the hand of God? Now, remember a scroll or a book back then was very unlike a scroll uh, or a book today. It did not have the the leather bound. It did not have the book chapter verses like we have today. What it was was a papyrus. It was an animal skin with ink, and you had written on it. And this particular scroll would have been rolled up from the beginning to the end, and it would have been marked with a seal or, or just a simple mark, and it would be rolled over a little bit more, and then it would be marked again. And the more seals and the more writing denoted the more importance of the document. And so it's not lost on us that there are seven, which is the number of completion. And so there, this lengthy scroll, this book that has been rolled from both ends, it is demarcated, it is marked with seven seals, and it resides in the hand of God. And John sees all of this in a vision, and, and he's thinking, I know he's thinking to himself, what is that scroll, and who is worthy to open it? Dr. Robert Thomas makes a very powerful and insightful uh, statement when he reveals to us about the scroll. He says, this kind of scroll or contract in the Middle East was very common, and it was used by the Romans from the time of Nero. 
This contract would be written on inner pages and sealed with seals, seven seals. The content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside, and all kinds of transactions, by the way, were consummated in this way. Marriages, rental and lease agreements, contract bills, bonds, and so forth. And in the Hebrew practice of a scroll like this, it would be a document more closely resembling a title deed. A title deed that would be folded, signed, and it would require at least three witnesses. And he goes on to write, A portion of text would be written, folded over, and sealed with a different witness signing at each fold. A larger number of witnesses meant that more importance was assigned to this document. End of quote. What I believe John sees, this scroll or this book is two things. And you have your outline there, and I would encourage you to jot these two things down. Number one, it would be the title deed to planet Earth. The title deed to Earth. Now, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that there is a God of this age. Little g, referencing the enemy, Satan himself. Now, while God is sovereign... And God is absolutely providential. He is in control. He is totally omnipotent. But yet when the fall of man happened in Genesis chapter 3, our world changed dramatically. Through the free will, the choice of mankind, Adam and Eve, to sin, at that moment, you got to remember, there was no disease. There was no sickness. There was no crying. There was no separation from God. God walked with them. Remember that? In the cool of the day, and he would say, Adam, and, and Adam would speak to God, and yet when he sinned, everything violently changed. And now that sin and, and death and decay has entered the world, God is still sovereign, and yet in many ways our world is in turmoil. I like the way Dr. W.A. Crystal put this. He was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas for 50 years, and one of his messages is on Revelation chapter 5, and, and in it he writes these words. He says, such is the curse that sin had laid upon God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it, that usurper, interloper, intruder, stranger, alien, dragon, serpent, Satan, devil himself. Now, I think if I were to press you, everybody would probably agree that not all is well on planet Earth. Would, would you not agree? I mean, we have wars and rumors of wars. We have earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes. We have people uh, killing and executing others. We have, we have a group in the Middle East that is dead set on genocide, absolutely eradicating anybody who does not agree with their religion. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, For our creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans. This very earth groans under the weight and the burden of sin and turmoil and, and devastation. The earth itself, it's like it's, it's crying out, oh God, come and redeem planet earth. For we know this whole creation groans and labors from birth pangs together until now. And so God is still sovereign. He's still in control. 
But this ominous scroll, many people, W.A. Criswell, David Jeremiah, John McCarthy, many people that I've read and myself, I believe that this scroll is somehow this title deed to planet Earth. Number two, I believe it is the future of the world. Write that in under B. The future of the world. Now, when you go back through the Old Testament, it's really interesting. This scroll, this ominous book pops up in eschatological literature or prophetic literature. For example, let, let me read to you in Daniel. In Daniel, he, he wanted to see what was in that scroll, but God would not allow him. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. And when you look at it within its context, the scroll is sealed up. So Daniel's not even allowed to peer into it, but Ezekiel is. Let me, let me read this. This is a fascinating passage to me. Now, when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. So, Revelation 5 is not the first time you see this ominous, conspicuous book, this scroll. And Ezekiel says, then he spread it before me, and there was writing on it, inside and on the outside. And written on it were lamentations and mourning and Whoa, I believe it's the same book. And I believe what is in the hand of God that Jesus is about to come and take is the future of the world. In other words, I believe it contains what we're going to read in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Let me read some good material to you that I think will we'll shed some light on it. For example, David Jeremiah says, to put it simply, and I'm always a little cautious when anybody says to put it simply because... <laughs> Because it can get a little confusing, especially when it comes to Revelation. But I must say, he does a splendid job of describing the title deed nature and the future judgment of the world. Listen to David Jeremiah when he writes these words. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. So you have the seals, the trumpet, and the bowls. Look, look at this, church, for just a minute. He describes it like a telescope. And you know, a telescope can be like this, and then it can narrow. And within the larger part, he would say, is the seven seals. And then you have the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And by the way, we're going to get to all of those. Those are the specific judgments of God that we will study in Revelation 6 through 19. He says, therefore, within the seven seals are contained all the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, all the judgments of God. And they are contained in the scroll in his hand. This book unfolds the story of the tribulation from beginning to end. The venue for chapters 4 and 5 is heaven. The venue for chapters 6 through 19 is earth. Through the scroll, the title deed to earth, Jesus Christ is going to come once again, take control of planet earth, a realm which belongs to him. End of quote. So here you have the scene. There is, in Revelation chapter 5, there's this ominous moment where it's like worship is suspended for a moment, and John sees there's almost a, a crisis, if you will, in heaven. It's not really a crisis, because God is absolutely in control. But John, in this heavenly vision or revelation, he sees the scene with the 24 elders and the four living creatures and, and God sitting on the throne, and in his hand, it's like all of heaven focuses on this ominous scroll, this biblion in the Greek, this book. What is it? Many people, myself included, believe it is the title deed to earth, 
And it is the judgment revealed in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. So number two is the search. There is an exhaustive search conducted in heaven above. In verses 2 through 4, this loud angel, this strong angel says with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Now, get this because this is a very important point of interpretation. He asks who is worthy because the person who opens the book must have the wherewithal and the power to enact what is written in the book. Did, did, you, did you hear that? That's very important. Now, many people could look and peer into it, but, but not everybody. In fact, only one, we're going to find out, is qualified to open the book. But once you open it, you have to have the wherewithal and the power to enact the contents of what is written in the book. Verse 3 says, no one was able, uh, the word dunamis, where we get power. Nobody had the power to open this scroll. One writer says it shows that all of creation's inability and unworthiness to open the scroll was a chronic and ongoing condition. And I got to thinking about that. Whenever this happens and this scene begins to be unveiled, which I don't think this scene has happened yet, I thought about all the prominent and powerful men and women who've ever lived since the history of mankind. I thought about all the dignitaries and all the kings and the princes and the queens and the entrepreneurs and the doctors and the military generals and colonels. I thought about amazing, gifted scientists and, and people who were so brilliant and people who had done amazing, remarkable things. And yet, in light of all that, there is this exhaustive search in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And, and all of that search brought up nobody is worthy to open the scroll and enact the judgment. So as a result, the Bible says in verse 4, John wept. The word clio is an interesting word. This word weep, guys, it's an ugly cry. Y'all with me on that? You ever had an ugly cry where you cried so much and things started coming out of your nose along with things coming out of your eyes and, and, and you're weeping uncontrollably? It's the same Greek word, clio, that is used to describe Martha's weeping when her brother Lazarus died. Remember that? In the Gospel of John, he died, and, and Martha and Mary, they're just weeping uncontrollably, sobbing. The same word, clio, is used in, in, in the Gospel of Luke where Peter, it says, he looked over at Jesus after he had denied him those three times. And you remember the Bible says, and he went out and he wept bitterly, clio. It's the same word. And I didn't see that till, in fact, early this morning as I was studying the sermon yet again, I saw something that I had not seen before. That both Martha's situation and Peter's situation and John's bitter weeping are all going to turn out okay. Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead and dry her tears. Jesus will forgive and restore Peter, and he will become a mighty Pentecostal preacher there in Acts chapter 2. And John's tears are about to be eradicated when heaven reveals the one who is worthy to open the scroll. So I thought that was interesting with that, with that word to weep. And W.A. Criswell says again, and I love the way he writes this. He said, these tears of John, 
They represent all the sobs and the tears wrung from the heart and the soul of God's people. When God's people experience heartache and pain on planet earth, for example, when they look into the open grave and they're about to lay their loved one down six feet underneath the earth, those tears represent the tears and the trials and the sufferings of life, the heartaches and the disappointments indescribable. And so you have this ominous scroll, and then number two, you have this exhaustive search, and number three, you have someone that's going to save the day, the Savior. I I tried to bring it out in the public reading of God's Word, but let me say it again. In verse 5, I think everything in the book hinges on verse 5, the first letters, the first word, but. But one of the elders said to me, I tell you, if there's ever a day, if there's ever a time, we needed a word of hope. Would you not agree it's today? Our world, church family, is falling apart. Our world is is fast approaching hell in a handbasket, it appears. And I was just listening this week, and my heart was just so grieved again as a group of people, some Christians, some not in the Middle East, They're being eradicated. There's a desire literally to genocide them and to wipe them clean off the face of the earth. Now, if that breaks your heart, what do you think that does to the heart of God? Then I see again another jet shot down out of the sky by Russia and the Ukraine, and that war goes on and on. And by the way, Israel is is probably going to go back at war with Hamas and Gaza. I hope not. I'm praying not. And then, you know, I just I see these riots in Missouri. And folks, that is not in the Middle East, and that's not in Europe, that's not in Africa. That's just a couple of states north of us. And I see all the turmoil, and I see all the pain, and I see all the hurt, and I'm like, oh God, what is happening in our world? Let me personalize it. Some of you here today would say, all is lost, all is hopeless. And I would say, but. The end of the world, but. My son is dead, but my life is not worth living. I've been hurt so many times, but my marriage is, you know, Brother Dan, I don't even think my marriage is going to make it, but I've sinned against God, and I don't know that God, even God could forgive me of what I've done. Can I just say to this to you and to me today, there is hope. And that hope is found not in a military, not in a president, not even in a religion. That hope is found in this person I'm about to describe. Because the angel tells him, or the elder tells him. Now remember, this elder represents redeemed humanity. He tells John, he says, a a good translation of this present imperative in verse 5. It uses the strongest negation you can use in the Greek New Testament, the may. The ume construction with the present imperative means stop. Stop it. I mean, John is is weeping uncontrollably. and, And the elder says, stop. Behold. Look, John. There he is. There is one who can come and save the day. There is one who is qualified, who is capable to come, and he can take back planet Earth. He can enact the judgments that are going to happen. And and notice the way that this 
This elder describes the threefold description of, and I think you'll figure out who it is. First of all, he says he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It takes you back to Genesis chapter 49. Now again, I'm convinced that John is convinced that we know our Old Testament. And so when he says the lion of the tribe of Judah, I I think he has in his mind Genesis chapter 49 verse 9 where it says Judah is a lion's whelp. Now remember this is Jacob as he's pronouncing blessings over the 12 sons uh, of Isaac. He's about to give these, these blessings and he says Judah is from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall arouse him? The, keep, keep rolling, verse 10. They shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him, notice the capitalization, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. In other words, this aged patriarchal father is telling his sons, of all of you, and you're all going to be tribes, are going to be named after you, but Judah, from you is going to come one who's going to be like a lion. And he's going to roar, and he will rule. Now, you know, and if you didn't, I'm about to share with you, that Jesus Christ was born of the tribe of, anybody want to take a big guess? He was born of the tribe of Judah, and that is not, insignificant, and that is not lost on this prophecy. Number two, he said, this person will be from the root of David. Now, root simply means offspring. It's a metaphor for posterity or offspring. The one worthy to open the scroll will somehow be connected to the lineage of David. And so you see that when Jesus, when his genealogy is presented in the Gospels, and when you trace it both through David, I mean, excuse me, both through a Joseph, and you chase it through Mary, both lineages converge at the point of King David. And Isaiah 11, 1 says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Now you remember, Jesse is David's father. And a branch, notice the capitalization of rod and branch. The prophets, they're, they're telling us something. This Messiah will come from Jesse, from David. He shall grow out of his roots. And then Isaiah eleven four 4 says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. One more, verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root, an offspring, the posterity, if you will, the genealogy of Jesse, David's dad, who shall stand as a banner to the people, For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It says that the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, he is the one who is able and he has the wherewithal to prevail. And that word, as I read a moment ago, is the word Nikon or Nike. He has the power to conquer and be victorious. But notice the third one. I think this is my favorite. The last description of the worthy one to come and take the scroll and enact the judgments is described as the Lamb of God. In verse 6 it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, notice this church, in the midst of the very throne of God and of the four, remember those last week, ominous, amazing creatures, and in the midst of all the redeemed humanity, there stood a Lamb as though it had been slain. 
Now, you know that the lamb was sacrificed in the Old Testament as a propitiation, as a, as a shedding of blood for the sins of the people. In fact, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no propitiation. There is no forgiveness or remission of sins. And you see in Isaiah chapter 53, this is a beautiful description of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, 7, I think we have it on the screen. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a, somebody help me, what does that say? As a lamb. In Isaiah 53, the context is the suffering, messianic Messiah who would come He would come to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then in John 1, 29, John the Baptist turns to Jesus Christ there in Palestine, in Israel. He turns to him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One writer put it this way, and I cannot improve on this. He said, To be sure... The marks of his death are visible, but because of his resurrection, they are not debilitating. So there he is, the Lamb of God. And John says he has seven spirits that proceed from him. And we've already studied this in the sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11 and Zechariah chapter 4. And when you read Isaiah 11 too, it says the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of knowledge, Spirit of wisdom. There are seven descriptions of this one Holy Spirit. And he says he has the seven horns. You say, yeah, Brother Daniel, what is that? I mean, there, there, you know, there's this metaphor. There's this, I understand that it's, it's clearly Jesus, but yet John describes him as as a lion and as a root of David, and now he describes him as a lamb. How does that unfold? And and the seven eyes, and what are those horns, those seven horns? Church, all I can say is I don't rightly know. I I don't know how all John saw all this. But I do know whenever horns are used in the Old Testament, it always refers to one thing, and that is strength. There is strength. There is power denoted in this. And I could not help but see... uh, how, how God is, how Jesus is described in this threefold way. Check this out. When you see the seven horns, you think of the omnipotence of God, strength and power. When I see the seven eyes, I think of the, the omniscience, the all-seeing gaze and visibility. And then finally, it says, in all the earth, the omnipresent one, as he is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. So verse 7 comes to the climactic, pivotal text, many people believe, in all the entire book of the Revelation. Then he came, this one came, he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When I was studying this passage, I I kept thinking about this song. And uh, next week we're going to study the song of the redeemed. But this song, I I think many of you, you might be familiar with it. And I've got the, uh, the lyrics here, and I want to I share it with you. I believe in my heart that when this, when this song was written, that Revelation chapter 5 was clearly in the minds of Matthew Bridges and Godfrey Thring when they write these words. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. Hail him. As thy matchless king throughout all eternity. Now now listen to this stanza. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. 
Remember it says a lamb as if he had been slaughtered and slain. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. Can, can I read that again? Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty they are glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his wondering eye at mysteries so bright. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Finally, crown him the Lord of heaven, one with the Father known, one with the Spirit through Him given from yonder glorious throne. To Thee be endless praise, for Thou, for us, You have died. Be Thou, O Lord, through endless days, adored and magnified. I can't help but think that those writers, those authors, had in their mind this amazing passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, where Jesus Christ he is going to be the centerpiece, the very jewel, the very main attraction of heaven above. And in this moment, when everything is hell on earth, and, and I can just see, as Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, don't be surprised by these things. These things will happen. There will be wars and rumors of wars. I was just reading Billy Graham just this week, and, and Billy Graham was saying, I don't know how, how this world can last very much longer. You say, oh, Brother Dan, they've been saying that for, for years and years. I agree with Billy Graham. I, don't, I just look at the world and the way things are going, and barring a supernatural miracle of God, I believe it's going to be the end. I really do. Now, God can come. He can save the day. He can send revival. He can change people's hearts. But if He doesn't, then we're absolutely on course for Jesus Christ to take that scroll. Let me tell you something, church. When He takes that scroll... It is on. It's on. And he won't be the meek, mild, little baby Jesus, born in a manger, beard ripped out, crucified. He's going to judge this earth. And when he does, I just hope I'm not here. <laughs> I'm serious. And one of the reasons I think I'm not going to be here is because... In Christ Jesus, in us, there is no condemnation. And there will be condemnation. There will be an outpouring of the wrath of God on planet Earth. So, oh, please take confidence in this. It's not that God doesn't see what happened with Hitler. It's not that God does not see what is happening in Iraq today. It is not as if God does not see the hurt and the pain and the turmoil and the wars and, and, and just the chaos. He sees everything. But in His grace, He gives us more time. But that day, His clock is going to hit midnight. And in that moment, I don't know how this is going to unwind, but the God the Father will turn to God the Son and say, Go get my children, and it will be on. You know, as I... I know it's almost time, but I, I, I thought a lot about the judgment that is coming to this earth. And I think about people who are so unprepared. And in my heart, guys, I don't know why this is just, it, it just really tugged at me. It continues to, to bother me, this whole Robin Williams saga. 
And you see a man struggling with uh, Parkinson's that not many people knew. He'd just have been diagnosed with that. You see a man struggling with bipolar issues. You see him struggling with addictions. And, and nobody knows really what's going on in his heart. And this man, he takes his life because he doesn't think there's any hope. Oh, how I wish somebody could have reached him and said, Oh, Robin, stop weeping. There is one. There is one who loves you so much that he died for you. He arose from the dead. And if you were the only person on this planet, Robin Williams, Jesus Christ would have done this for you. One of my mentors in the faith, Johnny Hunt, somebody asked him a question one day, and I hope I can say this. I said, Pastor Johnny, have you ever thought about this? How in the world do people who don't know Christ or people without God, how do they make it in this world? And Johnny Hunt looked at me and said, they don't. They don't make it. Many of them end their lives prematurely. Many will just look for another thrill. Or, and our city is replete with these thrill seekers. If they could just get another high, just get another you know, relationship, just get another job, whatever it is. And you and I, we hold the keys to eternal life because His name is Jesus Christ. Oh, praise you, Lord. God, we love you. We worship you today. We thank you, God, that you are the sovereign God of this universe, that nothing takes you by surprise. Lord, I thank you for each person that is here today that is listening with rapt attention. Lord, we are all very interested because we could very well be the terminal generation when you come. And Lord, we just wanted you to know we love you. We want to be found faithful. We want to be bearing witness for the cross of Christ and the empty tomb. We want to be telling people about the Holy Spirit of God who, who can change a situation, change a dad, change a mom, change a family. And Lord God, please help us. Please help us to be a catalyst for a great awakening that would happen in this world. Lord, we do pray you would stay your hand of judgment. But Lord, we do know one day you're going to come and it's going to be ferocious. But God, in between that time, I thank you for this age of grace. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here right now within the sound of my voice, and God, they've never yielded their lives to the Lordship of Christ, I pray, God, they would do it before it's eternally too late. Lord, Lord Jesus... May they come to know you as a friend before they have to know you as their judge. So, Lord, we commit this sacred invitation to you. I, I thank you, Lord, for this amazing passage of Scripture. And thank you, Jesus, for the way you are. You are matchless. You are incomparable. There is none like you. We crown you with many crowns. Those rich wounds visible above, but yet, Lord, in beauty they're glorified. Those are your wounds. Those are the things... Really the only things, Lord, of, of man's substance that we put is those scars. And you have them, Lord, visible. And so, Lord, I pray even now that you would draw people into a saving relationship with you. Listen, friend, if you're here today and you're listening to me as I pray, you've never put your faith in Christ. I'm not up here screaming and hollering at you, trying to, trying to scare you, trying to manipulate you. I'm just here presenting what the Bible says about the future of the world and about who Jesus is. He's been so clearly prophesied. He comes, fulfills his prophecy. He lives the very life that he said he would live. A life of love, a life of compassion. 
He died in your stead so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be reunited with God. So I'm calling upon you today. Would you give God a chance? Would you call upon Him and say, Jesus, I believe. I repent of my sins and by faith, I'm trusting you. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, well, Brother Danny, I've done that. But I tell you, I I need to be living with a sense of passion and urgency. I need to jettison my mediocrity. I I really need to get busy for God because if that's true, if what you read is, is really true, then I've got some work to do. I've got a lot of lost neighbors and a lot of lost friends and colleagues, and I need to at least give them a chance. I need to tell them and share with them. So, Lord God, I pray for us today. I pray for us as a church that, Lord, we would be that radiant blast of hope in this city and in this nation, in this world. God, would you use Great Hills. Lord, may our greatest years of effective ministry, may it still be before us. And may you, God, continue to draw people to yourself. And may you do that even now during this invitation. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? God bless you as we stand, as we sing. We'll have pastors and counselors and deacons. We'll have people available. I know the hour is a little bit late, but thank you. Thank you for listening. And would you come even now as we sing?